Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. You probably know someone who has visited a physical therapist, perhaps after an accident or an injury. Maybe you yourself have seen a physical therapist at some point down the line. Physical therapists like Katherine Lang are trained to help people who have problems with movement, whether it's getting up the stairs or lifting a finger. But in this line of work, Lang focuses on more than a person's muscles. You know, all of our ability to move, yes, you have to have a skeleton and you have to have muscles, but it's really the nervous system and in large part the brain that lets us make the incredibly beautiful and complex movements that humans can make. If you think of, you know, elite gymnasts or um, the violin virtuoso, I mean, those are trained movements that are highly skilled and it's really the person's brain that's the rate limiting factor often more times than, the, than some of the muscles. Dr. Lang is a professor of neurology. In addition to being a professor of physical therapy and occupational therapy at Washington University in St. Louis's School of Medicine, there she also directs the Neuro Rehabilitation Research Laboratory. Shortly after getting her PhD, she did research on how specific areas of the brain control tiny, precise finger movements. From there, her fascination with the human body, and in particular the brain, led her to turn her attention toward what some people call brain attacks. That is, stroke. A stroke is simply a lack of blood supply to the brain. And, you know, there's the brain has many different areas in it. So the problems that you um, have as an individual with your stroke depend on where that stroke is in your brain. And so if your stroke affects the areas that control your movements, then you might have difficulty walking. Um, you, you might not be able to move your hand, which then leads you to difficulty doing things like getting dressed and taking care of yourself and feeding. A stroke that occurs in another part of the brain might lead to a different kind of problem, like not being able to speak or be understood. Whatever the specific symptoms, a lot of patients who have had a stroke end up working with physical therapists. An interesting thing about stroke is about 80% of people end up with the motor problems um, initially, and then about 50% of people end up with persistent motor problems. So there is a portion of people that get completely better um, and are normal, but there's a lot of people with deficits that last for a very long time. Lasting problems often mean long-term therapy at more than one hospital or facility. To help keep teams of doctors and therapists on the same page, Lang helped found a group called the Brain Recovery Corps. The group shares data and works on individualized treatments to help patients on their long road to recovery. On the research side, Lang looks at questions like, what dosage of therapy is best for any one patient? Here, we're thinking of dose as a certain number of movements instead of a certain amount of medication. And in addition to looking at existing therapies, Lang is also interested in how new treatments can help these patients. One in particular is both promising and really surprising. It starts with a phenomenon. There's this phenomenon called ischemic conditioning that has been around for a number of years. That's ischemic conditioning. Ischemic conditioning isn't an exercise or a movement. It's what happens when you temporarily cut off the blood supply to a certain part of your body. 
We're talking about limiting blood flow to an arm or a leg, not something dramatic like cutting off blood supply to the brain. Over the years, scientists have done studies with animals and ischemic conditioning, and it's been shown to have some pretty remarkable results. This has been shown to be cardioprotective, meaning if you have a heart attack and you've had this ischemic conditioning, then your heart attack is smaller and you do better. There's some emerging data in animal models that it's neuroprotective, so if you do this conditioning um, in a rodent model and then um, you give these um, rats a stroke, their stroke is smaller and they do better. So for both heart attack and stroke, animals that had the conditioning did better. What's going on here? How could cutting off blood supply make an animal more resistant to a heart attack or a stroke? In large part, the answer to that question is still a mystery. What it does is it causes your tissues to secrete some magic factors, and I'm putting these in quotes because we don't really know what they are, but there's something secreted in the blood that is then um, confers this protection. And they know this because they've actually taken blood from one animal who's had the ischemic conditioning and provided a transfusion to another animal who hasn't had it. And you guessed it, after having a stroke, the animal with the transfusion also did better. Whatever this magic sauce caused by ischemic conditioning is, it stays in the blood. So far we've been talking about rodents, but what about humans? Lang wants to know whether ischemic conditioning might be able to help patients who already have had a stroke get better. So she's putting it to the test. In a laboratory experiment, she gives participants ischemic conditioning using a simple blood pressure cuff. So I can put a blood pressure cuff on your arm and I inflate it um, to a certain amount over your blood pressure, which essentially um, cuts off the blood supply to your arm. This is a very controlled process that lasts a short amount of time. So there's no danger of damaging the tissue in the person's arm. In the experiment, all the participants put on the blood pressure cuff. Some people get the ischemic conditioning, others don't. The people whose cuffs aren't inflated as much are getting what Lang calls sham conditioning. After that step, the participant heads over to a playground. Well, not really, but something sort of like it. So we have our kind of target task um, right now is a a balance board really. You're standing in the middle of a seesaw and you're trying to keep the seesaw level. And so what we do is we test you on that and you're pretty bad at it when you start. And then we give you experience or training exposure to it over and over and over again. Um, and we see how you do. And most people show these nice learning curves where um, they get progressively better over time. All the participants improved the more that they practiced, but some people could learn much faster. People that receive the ischemic conditioning learn about 70% more than people who receive sham conditioning. That's 70% more. If that seems like a dramatic result, that's because it is. In, in the years that I've been doing research, I've never seen an effect that's this strong and this consistent. So it seems that every single person in the that gets the ischemic conditioning does a lot better than every single person that gets the sham. This could be a really exciting development for people who have suffered a stroke. If ischemic conditioning can help people learn how to balance on a board, it's possible that it could also help people learn other motor tasks, like how to walk again after having a stroke. The next big question is figuring out the ingredients of this secret sauce. 
and how to best use it to help real people with motor problems. Part of this secret sauce might be proteins that um, enhance nerve growth and help you establish stronger connections between the neurons that you need to do this particular task. And so now we're going to investigate lots of questions surrounding that, like what different types of tasks might people learn on. Um, and we've targeted those tasks to the kind of training and learning experiences that people um, have during stroke rehabilitation. We're also very interested in who it might work on. So there's some animal studies that suggest that um, rats who've had their ovaries removed don't show as much of a response. And the, of course, the human equivalent of that is postmenopausal women. And then there's other suggestions that um, some different conditions that might occur in people with stroke might not make it as effective as we would hope. So we're explicitly going to test all those things. Um, and then what the goal would be to have a sample of people with stroke to test it on. In short, there are plenty of questions to keep Blang and her colleagues busy for years to come. She sees that as simply the nature of working on something as complex as the human brain. It's kind of like you learn something, and when you learn something, instead of answering the question that you set out to learn now, you, you have a partial answer and then you have five new questions. Um, so it's really quite fascinating in that way. I think we're going to be, we meaning the um, volume of uh, population of neuroscientists and people interested in the brain are going to be studying this for decades to come. Many thanks to Katherine Lang for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, including more from our series on the human brain, please visit us at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also find Hold That Thought on Facebook or Twitter, or subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.